This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelore. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. We're in for a treat today. We've got the incredible author of Girls on the Brink joining us today. Is this your seventh book? It is. It is number seven, and I'm working on number eight. Yeah. <laughs> you, are, you are a force to be reckoned with. Donna is an award-winning journalist and internationally recognized speaker whose work explores the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and human emotion. She has written a book called Girls on the Brink, Helping Our Daughters Thrive in an Era of Increased Anxiety, depression and social media. You've basically been featured on every major press outlet. I was reading through some of your work and I think that the work that you're doing is so timely and so needed right now more than ever. Thank you. I mean, we do know that girls are suffering in ways that we have never seen before. And as someone who you know, has devoted myself to this niche of the connection between neuroscience and emotion, I follow the trends very closely in every article that I write, in every book that I research and report on. And I spend my life sitting in neuroscience labs, watching what they're doing and reporting on it, translating it so that we can make use of it in our lived experience right now. And so for quite a while now, we've been seeing this trend long before the pandemic showing us that girls' mental health is tanking in really concerning ways and more quickly than we might ever have imagined. And we're starting to understand the why and what we can do about it. And I think it's really important to get the science and these strategies out there. Incredibly important. I have full body goosebumps already and feel, you know, having having a, a little five-year-old girl and watching noticing, observing her and the things that she's interested in, I feel so called to really understand what's going on with the mental, emotional well-being of our girls. I also have three nieces who are in their late teens, early 20s. And so I've had the honor of watching them grow up in a digital world and seeing how that has impacted them. And it is not easy. When you say girls' mental health is at a breaking point, it's not great right now. What does that mean? For those of you who read the headlines, I guess that although this came out after my book, the CDC, you know, just reported a few weeks ago in their biannual report on the health and well-being of youth in America, their lead line was that girls are consumed by trauma 
in our current environment, and that 57% of girls are now reporting periods of hopelessness and, and a loss of interest in their activities. Now, I know because I report on this stuff and I wrote a book about it, in 2019, that number was about one in three. So 33% to 57% from 2019 to 2023. I think personally, because I write from a feminist perspective, that a good litmus test for the health of any society is how well are its girls doing? How well are they faring, right? Because we know that historically girls have faced more stressors and more outward sexism and misogyny and fewer opportunities and more sexual harassment and so on and so forth because of being born female and the vulnerability that can come with that. And therefore, I think it's a good way to judge how well a society is doing. If we look at individuals who have suffered from that kind of misogynistic culture, and our girls are doing worse than ever. So what does that tell us? That's what I want to ask the listener. Like, what does that tell you if girls are faring more poorly in their emotional health than they have in decades? What does that tell you about the health of our society? I don't think it says anything good. And in fact, the research shows that to be true. I also want to jump in for the questioners in the room who might very well be asking themselves, well, how do we know this trend is real? Maybe girls are just more upset than they used to be, or you know, they're more aware of therapeutic language to describe their feelings and more likely to use expressions about distress and and discomfort and and depression. I want to just set that straight. That's not the case. When researchers look at these numbers, they're looking at how girls are affected in their day-to-day lives. Have they lost interest in their activities? Has this been going on for six or 12 months or more? Is there a shift in their behavior and how able they are to do their schoolwork, maintain their friendships, participate in their activities, how they describe themselves. And what we're seeing is that girls today are more likely to describe themselves as having very little effect over their lives, having very little sense of hope, having worthlessness, shame, and guilt. This is a big shift, people. When you say that a lot of girls are living in a space of trauma, what kind of trauma are we talking about? Like when I think trauma before, you know, having had many of these conversations, it would have been like faced with war, physical abuse, these bigger traumas. When you are talking about trauma that girls are faced with today, what are you what are you talking about? Well, to be clear, it's the CDC who came out a few weeks ago and said our girls are facing unprecedented levels of trauma. My words for it are stress and adversity. They've kicked it up to the trauma level because traditionally we think of trauma, four domains of trauma and adversity, right? And those are the stressors in one's household of origin. I've done a lot of work on the ACEs studies, you know, that body of work about adverse childhood 
experiences in their relationship to long-term health and well-being. And we know a ton about that, right? We have 2,000 plus well peer-reviewed studies which show us that relationship between household dysfunction, feeling your parents don't have your back or being emotionally neglected or put down or made fun of or ridiculed by a parent or caregiver, growing up with a parent who's an alcoholic or, or who has a substance use disorder or who has an untreated mental health disorder, so on and so forth. That's a category. It's a bucket. Think of it as a big bucket and put all your different types of household dysfunction in that bucket. A second type of stressor are really community stressors. Those are things like school shootings, increased violence, or living in a violent neighborhood, or facing racism, or being in a community where you don't have access to good grocery stores or decent schools, right? And then we have environmental stressors, which we've certainly seen with the pandemic. So again, now I'm on my third bucket, if you like to visualize things the way I do. And in that third bucket, we can also put climate change, right? Like how many kids right now are living in a in an area where things have dramatically changed for them compared to when we were children in terms of wild weather, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and so on. So now social scientists and neuroscientists have, thanks to the influx of the online life culture and ding, 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 social media, have added a fourth bucket, social stressors. Now, social stressors have always been around. You grew up in a world in which you had social stressors, and so did I, even though I think you and I are slightly different generations. And for me, what that looked like is, you know, where are you going to sit in the cafeteria? Do you get a spot at the cool table? Do you not? Are you with the nerds? I mean, for me, a lot of days I went and had lunch with my art history teacher. So what does that look like for you? Are you invited to the right parties? Are you hanging on the phone with people on the weekends who include you at so-and-so's house? But today it's entirely different. As the girls I followed told me, I mean, one comes to mind right now. She said, look, if you want to be popular today, you have to be hot and you have to be hot by 11. And not only do you have to be hot, you have to be hot on Instagram and TikTok. And uh-oh, if you're too hot, then you get the back slap of that, that you're slutty, you get all the all the remarks on TikTok and social media. So to say now you're 12, 13, 14, and we know that girls get more followers, the more clothes they take off, right? And the more willing they are because of societal pressure, not because they want to, to sexualize themselves while they are still children, as if they are a grown woman, to simply skip the passage of development and sexualize themselves to be hot at an early age, to be popular, to have social connection. This is new. And this is really, really bad for the developing female brain. I actually feel nauseous listening to this. I'm getting dizzy. Yeah. Thinking about this and thinking about even some of the shows that my five-year-old watches, even though I'm very tuned into what media she's consuming, even the little cartoons, you start to notice like they're in their cute little outfit. They're doing their little dance moves. And it's so hard to 
as a parent navigate, is this just fun and cute? Or is this starting the sexualization of our kids, seeing them in these little outfits with the crop tops and like, you know, is that just fashion or is that blurring the lines of what's good and healthy for our kids versus not? Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L com slash talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you over. So we have these four buckets of trauma and our kids are experiencing more and more of this. I also can imagine at some level, simple things that can cause trauma, like the busyness of families these days, constantly being on the go, both parents working in order to make ends meet, not necessarily having those levels of connection that we know are so healthy for our children, that these are all like micro levels of trauma or stress that are impacting our kids as well. Yes. No, you're on the money. And um, I should have actually said, so I'm glad you brought that up. In, In community stressors, we put in that bucket these incredibly higher benchmarks at earlier ages for academic success. And, you know, my kids now are in their twenties 
they were in that cohort of, you know, you were nobody if you didn't take 12 AP classes in high school, right? Like you had no future. But guess what? Those meant that in middle school, you needed to already be running over to the high school to take AP classes. And if you weren't doing that, you had to very least be on an all honors level, meaning for each class, by the time you were in sixth grade, you had about a how, an hour of homework. So you're in sixth grade, you're going to bed at one in the morning because you've got to stay on that track. And of course, we pulled our kids back from that as much as we could, as well as from club sports. We were sort of like anti go, go, go to the extent we could be that level of stress isn't good for the developing body and brain. And we know that we have really taken away that passage, what I call in the book and write about a lot, the in-between years between childhood and adolescence, that period between seven and 13 used to be a period of time where you were relatively free in human society to come of age, to develop, to figure out what do I really like and don't like to lie on the grass, talk with your friends about the shapes, of the clouds versus being in a minivan rushing at 430 in the morning to your club lacrosse tournament four states away. Right. So that period of time is a crucial bridge between childhood and adolescence. It's where kids try things out in friendships. They develop a lot of neural scaffolding and uh, wiring and firing up in the brain, learning in small, healthy, safe ways where the stakes aren't quite so big every single minute of every day. And we've taken that and we've replaced it with this period of being externally evaluated 24-7 with academics, extracurriculars, sports, and now online as well. And this means that we've exposed the developing brain to a high level of stress before the brain has wired and fired up to handle that level of competition, evaluation, and stress. I'm so glad you're talking about it because I feel like this age range is just not discussed enough. Like I have, other than you, not heard of anybody talking about anything other than like the pivotal age between a newborn and a five-year-old and like the importance of connection and repair and like all these beautiful things that are really important during that stage. And then we dive right into teenagers and it's like, (laughs) there are these forgotten years where children are still really obviously developing and growing and learning. And, and so I'm so glad we're having this conversation. My seven-year-old is playing hockey and he loves hockey. He has two practices and a game every week. I was fascinated. This is his first year playing at how intense the parents on his team are. And already there are three or four kids who are incredible players. Like these kids are amazing on the ice but how their future has basically already been decided. Their summers are all going to be hockey. Their weekends are all going to be hockey. And this isn't any judgment against how parents are parenting or the decisions that they're making. No, 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 no. no. If you have a kid who is so gifted at something and they, the way I describe it to parents, if they put the gas in the engine, like they're waking up and going, 
hockey, 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 hockey. We want to follow that. We want to follow the passion. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. But the problem is, and to share a story from my son's life, he's now in grad school at Berkeley. So I don't think he's going to listen to this, but when he was seven or eight, he was a sailor. We, we lived on the Chesapeake Bay and he sailed and it was super fun and low key and lots of boys in boats and girls in boats banging into each other and really fun to watch. And then figuring it out, right? Like, oh, I'm going to catch a little wind here. And a lot of his friends were playing soccer and he wanted to try soccer. And we tried soccer and he was like seven and he just wanted to smell the daisies on the field. <laughs> They'd be like trying to get him in on a play and he'd be like, yeah, 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 no, I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> and when he did start to get into it a little bit, he was noticeably not up to snuff with the other players. And I remember the coach saying to me one day, you know, he's getting really good, but unfortunately next year by the eights, the eight-year-olds. Mm-hmm. If you haven't already been in this for three or four years, I don't think you can ever catch up. And I was like, well, I guess it's a good thing that we don't care <laughs> or that he doesn't care because that would be like hard, but that is where we are. Right. And so what I found fascinating is that as there was this current and dialogue around, okay, the summer camps and the spring camps, and are they in this thing, that Scott and I started to feel pulled by this current. We had a moment where we just stepped back for a second and said, he's seven. What does our family value right now? What feels important? And So we've decided he loves hockey. So he's going to play his three days a week and he'll do a camp in the summer, but we're, we're going to not get pulled in with the rest of the group and rather let him guide and follow behind his current. If that makes sense. I love that. Let him be the driver. If he's the driver and he'll have a sudden, and a lot of things shift across development, which is what's so interesting. You know, the 10-year-old who's good at hockey may be very different than the seven-year-old who was so good at hockey. Right. A lot happens across puberty for girls and boys in terms of their dexterity and their, you know, brain-body connection and everything else going on in their lives with stressors. And if we can allow them to follow, and what I tell parents when I I talk to lots of parent groups, I talk to lots of girl groups as well. And what girls want and what kids want and what parents forget is what you have remembered, which is they have to choose it. They have to want it. And our job is to step back and support them, not for being the best. Their job isn't to grow up to be the best at hockey. Their job is to grow up to be a good person. That's what you're about as a family, that's your job and to help them develop resilience and and figure out their passions and to be able to step out, let them be the drivers, follow where that takes them, not by saying you were the best out there. Wow. You scored the most goals. All of it is a bus. It's a bus full of parents who see this as an opportunity, understandably, for those very, very narrow passages into success for their children. This might be the college acceptance. And in fact, if it may play a role in that, and it may not. And the rest of the parents on the bus are like, 
we're human. We come from community. We see that there's all this excitement and effort and intention and, and time and money and energy going into something by other people. And it takes what you did to step back and go, but is this who we are as a family? And look at what your child is telling you, what their experiences, what are they gaining from this? And to be ready and prepared for that moment when they're interested in something else and to support that growth, because that is what matters is to have a child who looks back and doesn't feel that they were pushed along in one narrow way across their life by you as parents, but had the opportunity to become a human adult with a full range of experience. Hey, I tried soccer. Hey, I tried sailing. Hey, I tried wrestling. Hey, I know how to play tennis and ride horses. And I enjoy all of these things in my adult life. And I still went to a good college. Yeah, I love that. I saw a video by Gary V, who generally doesn't talk a lot about parenting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a marketing business guy. And a parent was asking him, what is a key to being a successful, good parent? And he said, helping your child to feel safe, because only when our children feel safe, are they comfortable to really lean into and to try new things, to feel comfortable enough to fail, like to risk failing and to know that they'll be resilient enough to step back up. So coming back to this comment that you made about kids being faced with trauma at an age where their brains are not yet ready to handle all of that, how does this impact them in the long run? Well, to get into the discussion about safety, because this is a huge part of the current exploration in neuroscience and a big part of what I reported on in Girls on the Brink, but moreover, more than half of the book is about strategies, right? And a lot of them are about creating that sense of safety because what your colleague said is exactly right. And here's why. Because across development, childhood and adolescence and those in-between years, the whole kit and caboodle, the brain is really a detective. And it's number one question that it's asking as a detective is, am I safe or am I not safe? The brain is literally dancing with hundreds of thousands of cues in every moment to discern the answer to that. And here's what's what happens in the brain when the answer to that question is, I'm not safe. And to understand I'm not safe, let's think about all the stressors, the buckets we talked about earlier, right? Like think of any of those that are creating what we call chronic, unpredictable, toxic stressors. I'm a writer. I love acronyms. I call them cuts, right? So chronic, unpredictable, toxic stressors. What do those all have in common? You don't know when they're going to happen. There's no way to predict them. They happen chronically over time, but unpredictably, this turns out to be really bad for the developing brain. The brain can handle something that's going to happen every Friday at four o'clock that's stressful, like their allergy shot and go, okay, I don't like it. I'm a little activated, but here we go. Yuck. Have a good cry. Done. Not the same. Chronic unpredictable toxic stress throws the brain into a state of hypervigilance, and it doesn't allow the brain to turn on and off those stress regulatory genes. 
So we want the brain across development to turn on for appropriate stressor and turn off again like a garden hose. But when you are facing chronic unpredictable toxic stressors across childhood and the brain is clocking, I'm not safe. I'm not safe. I'm not safe. Another bad thing is coming. Don't know when. Got to stay prepared. Imagine that garden hose stays stuck on and imagine what's coming out of it is this slow trickle of inflammatory chemicals and hormones that over time reset biology. They alter the function of the immune system, revving up that stress reactivity across the lifespan and literally shifting the architecture of the brain in suboptimal and unhealthy ways. So how do we battle that? How do we come up with anything to take on the stress loads and sense of unsafety that our children are facing? Well, the opposite of trauma is connection. And connection has to be with safe, stable, well-regulated, nurturing adults with whom life is not unpredictable. And that means, people, the work starts with you. There's no way around it. I don't know if you know with your kids, there's a great book. We're going on a bear hunt. Yep. Can't go around it. Gotta go through it. Whenever I think of that book, I actually think of the importance, although this is not what it's about, of our working through our stuff, right? The only way we can be that safe, stable, nurturing parent who offers connection as an antidote to trauma is to do our own work. That's why we have the food and body reset and the anxiety reset over here for anybody who is wanting to support their kids. As you said, it starts with us as individuals learning these skills. Okay, you mentioned cuts. What would be some examples of cuts? Because when we talk about providing safety for our kids. It's not about buffering them and wrapping them in bubble wrap so that they never, you know, feel a bit of stress about a spelling test that's coming up or feel a bit nervous before getting on a stage. Like some little bits of stress where that tap turns on is okay. But as you said, it's sort of that chronic stress. So could that be comments on a social media post and not knowing what's going to come up, arguing parents, financial insecurity, food insecurity, bullying at school, like stress. Yes. So we know that social media is a particularly acute source of social stress. And to really explain why, I have to kind of take you on a little um, time machine way, 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 way back in time to when we were hunter and gatherers. This is why social safety matters so much. It required a lot of close collaboration and cooperation within the tribe to all get along, right? Way back when, even if you were just being laughed at or somebody rolled their eyes at you across the communal fire or gossiped about you, that was a sign of impending physical danger. Now, that sounds like a big statement, but here's why. Because back in that, across anthropological history, if you were in any way socially left out, dismissed, dissed, you would be pushed further and further to the edges of the tribe. Mm. 
And at the edges of the tribe, away from the heart of the circle, you would not have access to the best meat, the good tubers. You might not be invited to go along to gather the berries or the nuts. And at the edges of the tribe, you'd be the first person. And so would your progeny, your children, and we care about our gene pool people, to be picked off by marauding tribes, predators, And if you're fully ostracized, boom, it's full physical harm. You are definitely going to be attacked by a predator, a marauding tribe, or be exposed to starvation or the elements, which all lead to physical wounding. Therefore, our super smart stealth immune systems across the millennia have evolved with social stress to rev up and go on overdrive and over-prepare and flood us with all those inflammatory stress hormones and chemicals that do damage to our immune system and our brains at the very first sign of social stress. The very first eye roll, the very first comment on social media, hey girl, you're fat. The very first post you see of a slumber party that you were left out of, glad she's not here, we're having a great time. The group chats when I'm giving talks to parents literally three nights ago on a parent talk, parents told me in third grade, the group chats, because the girls in third grade, they're not allowed on social media yet because the parents are really trying to stay proactive. And as you well know, a lot of eight-year-olds are on social media. Social media companies say they're supposed to start at 13, which is actually too young, But they also show in their internal data that the majority of girls are on by age eight. Well, really thoughtful parents have gotten together and they were not allowing this to happen. Their girls were not on social media. They weren't on Instagram. They weren't on Finstagram. They weren't on Snapchat, but they were allowed to have group chats and they were already experiencing these comments, which were inclusive or exclusive, creating these dramatic social stressors which within this group of very young girls. So the online world, including and especially as it ramps up to social media, where there are lots of images and images get through to the developing brain much faster than words, like something like 60,000 times faster. So this kind of social distress, and think about what I said earlier about the girls I've followed, one of whom was like, you've got to be hot by 11. That's popular. If you're not hot, you're not. And you have to be hot on social media. And now imagine the comments that come in around that and the sense of unsafety, because you're actually putting yourself forward in the world in order to fit in, in a way that is actually not safe. Girls know, they get it, that to be sexualized early is to be unsafe. Imagine that cognitive dissonance. I must be A to be liked. But if I am A, I will be vulnerable to B and blamed for it. There is no safety in any of that. For all of you who are listening right now, like, what do we do? How do we move from here? We will talk about that. I just want to stay on this point for a second here. In one of your articles, and I believe in your book, you talk about the fact that girls are going through puberty younger than ever. Why is this happening? 
And how is that impacting or, or changing things? Well, there are lots of theories around it. I cannot tell you why it's happening. I can tell you what the neuroscientists are theorizing. And there's a little more work to be done in this area of science in motion. But we do know that puberty is happening several years earlier than it used to. I think in um, 1900, it was 15. And today it's 10 or 11. So it's just radically changed. And that means a couple of things. And then I'll tell you why they think it's happening. It means that not only are we losing that period of those in-between years that we talked about as being so rich and important for neural development, it also means that if puberty is happening before adolescence, that means that all of that shift that happens during puberty, a lot of different hormonal shifts for girls, it's that big influx of estrogen. And estrogen is a master regulator in the body. It isn't just associated with that thrum of sexual hormones. It's so much more than that. It is a superpower hormone. It regulates the brain. It helps neurons be healthy and synapses to connect. It's a regulator for every organ in the body. And it's a superpower hormone in that it is the reason that after puberty, women can do everything men can do in smaller bodies with smaller organs while still having the energy to carry another life, right? It's a superpower. It boosts the immune function. However, when it comes in early, it also is a stress booster. It can boost those negative effects of that stress response that we talked about when we talked about that garden hose kind of turning on. Estrogen is the reason women have a more robust response to vaccines. It helps when a woman is carrying another life to help like fend off some of those viruses and environmental toxins and keep a baby safe. So it's really fantastic. Anybody who knows the adolescent female brain or is raised or taught an adolescent girl knows that her spidey sense is unparalleled. Adolescent girls can read the room like nobody's business. Mm. So this is a superpower evolutionary advantage. And I say that because across history, we've taken any difference, any sex difference, and we have vilified it if it has to do with women. You know, we have only to look at the history around the idea that the uterus wandered all over a woman's body and that if a woman was depressed, it was because her uterus was wandering to the wrong part of her body. And the cure was more sex with your husband. So we have taken any kind of sex difference. We've vilified it when it comes to women. So we're not doing that here. I want to be really clear about that. Estrogen only flips to an evolutionary disadvantage in the face of unrelenting chronic feelings of unsafety. Mm. And when puberty comes in early, and I promise I'm going to close this loop to your question, it means that you're getting this added stress hormone boost at the very wrong time before you have had the experiences of adolescence that allow the brain to develop a little wobble to, as you said, be able to handle it when a friend says, I don't want to be friends anymore, to be able to handle it when you get a B or a C or a D on a test. And no, this is not the end of the world. But when puberty comes in early, before adolescence, the brain starts to get remodeled by this rush of estrogen and hormones, and it's getting remodeled at the wrong time by the wrong things 
And before the brain has the scaffolding to discern, are these text messages dangerous or tomorrow will this go away? Even before the brain has developed the language to delve in and assess one's own emotions and label them and express them. And get this, before the brain knows when it's time to go to a grown-up and ask for help. Right. So they're not necessarily even aware as to when it's appropriate to reach out for that connection that we know helps repair these moments of stress. So, okay, we got to talk about how to navigate all of this because a lot of these pieces of stress that you're talking about, like some of them we can be really mindful of and we can protect our kids from, but other things, pandemics, global warming, social interactions that they're having at school, the messages that they're receiving from media, some of them are a little bit more out of our hands, right? So what are some of the things that you know that the science is sharing with us that can help support us as parents or caregivers or aunties or individuals who are working with kids to help them be healthy and happy? Yes. So to be clear, there are 15 that take up 150 pages in the book. So I'm going to do what I can here. So I want to just frame it with one study that really struck me. I do very deep reporting. It takes me two years to report a book. I probably talked to over a hundred neuroscientists and public health experts. And of course, you know, many of their voices are in girls on the brink, but by all means, not all of them. And of course, the voices of girls themselves. So one study that really struck me comes out of Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and it shows that the odds of a child flourishing across childhood and adolescence are 12 times greater for children whose parents answer very well to one question. And that one question is how well can this child come to you to talk about really difficult things? Wow. So we never see in research anything that shows a 12 times greater chance of anything, people. And this is really struck me because girls, the girls that I followed for years, the girl groups I talked to, they talk about this, that it is pivotal for them to be able to go to a parent. And often I'll be honest, it's a mom. Sorry, it's not fair so much as on you because so much has been dumped on moms. Okay. I would take this role over and over again. For me, this just feels like the most important thing. It is the most important thing. And that is what makes the biggest difference. Because when you think about it, There is a lot of emotional distress out there. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of adversity, but trauma is made bearable by being able to share it, feel seen, heard, listened to, validated, and safe with an adult who helps you to make meaning out of it. And that is how kids learn to do that for themselves, which brings us back to. I know you have courses on anxiety. One of my labors of love is teaching my program on narrative writing, which I teach at universities and parent groups and therapy groups and whatever. It's that process of being able to look at the pieces 
between your own story and how you are able to be available and respond, maybe in the ways you wish that your parents had. I always ask parents to do a little thought experiment. And if you're a parent, feel free to do it with me now. Just close your eyes for a minute. Think back to the last time things in your house were pretty wonky. Maybe something, you know, there was an argument that got going, the dog attacked the neighbor's dog, whatever. You know, what was the emotional climate like in your house? Maybe somebody lost a job or kid came home with an F on a paper. Ask yourself, was it a climate of emotional safety where your child could really voice and say to you and to your partner, if you have one, anything? without fear of shame, reactivity, or ridicule. And now take a bigger leap back in time to when you were a child. And imagine your own kitchen or living room or backyard. And think about the biggest thing that ever happened to you as a kid. And ask yourself, with that biggest, hardest, most red-hot, sticky thing that still can bring up emotion, in you today, could you go to a grown-up in your life and fully and completely express to them what you were feeling with a full sense of psychological safety that they would listen, hear you, validate you, and have your back? You can open your eyes now. That's what we're going for here. And it takes a level of diving in and doing the work. And one of the things I teach is asking those discrete questions about your own past to help you take a leap, right? Maybe past your own resistance to do this work or past what you don't know about your own story. So you can really create a connection between those red hot sticky moments in your own past and your own lack of psychological safety as a child and how it's getting reactivated in the moment. Because when you can see it and you can create very quick tricks to reground yourself by naming that vortex, your own personal vortex, seeing it and responding to it in ways that allow you to come back into the present moment. And this is way beyond mindfulness because I love mindfulness, but this is really a a narrative writing process. It's pretty simple and powerful. And to be able to be in that moment and be offering the thing that you did not get is making meaning out of your own experience. And it's relationship gold for your child. Thank you so much for taking us through that exercise and really allowing us to like feel into the present and the past and how those things are so intertwined and so deeply connected. Okay. So I love this piece around and this tool around the importance of having connection with your child. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Elisa Pressman and she oh, I love her. The very same thing, which I, which just feels so incredible to hear that this piece around connecting and what that looks like. And she emphasized the fact that even if a child has one person that they really feel safe with and that they can really connect with, that that is enough. Yes. When it comes to the nitty gritty of social media, when should kids be allowed to partake knowing that it's something that... (laughs) 
feet. Everyone's on it. Do you have any information or any science behind that? So the answer is going to be different for every family. And I want to approach this by saying that the pediatricians that I worked with and interviewed told me by and large that their families, the parents, never have a discussion about this at home. There is no discussion in the majority of American families about the question you just asked. In other words, parents aren't sitting down with each other and with their children and having a discussion about social media use. It has already crept in to the average American family. The adults are on their phones. The kids are on their phones by eight or nine before the conversation has begun. So the first thing we want to do is acknowledge that we're trying to put the horse back in the barn to some extent. And that that's okay. That is the tenaciousness, the addictiveness, the ubiquitousness of the smartphone social media era that we live in. This is not about you as parents. It's just interesting to know statistically that we are usually having this conversation a little bit late in the game and not to blame yourself, but walk up to it. And that's the first thing is to walk up to it. It's really hard to have these conversations acknowledge the feeling of what it's like when you can't find your phone, when you don't have access to your phone. Start with where we are, the reality of the situation. One of the pediatricians that I interviewed said, you know, if you wouldn't give them car keys, don't give them a smartphone and let them be on social media. Now, I haven't found a family who thinks that that's going to work for real life. So bear that in mind. But although social media companies say that 13 is the right age, most neuroscientists agree even a 16-year-old is going to need a lot of help navigating, responding to, and figuring out the kind of misogynistic and critical and evaluative and often dismissive comments, which are excluding them in different ways on social media. Even a 16-year-old is going to need help with that. Just because it's happening online and you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't the same as if you were to go pick your kid up from a high school football game 25 years ago and see that no one is talking to them, right? It's no different. Just because you're not experiencing it with your eyes doesn't mean they don't still need help with it. The most important thing we want to be doing from a very young age is developing social media literacy. I talk to a lot of groups of educators, and really what we're trying to do is get more of this programming into schools, right? Because wellness programs can have a big hand here, especially in families where parents are already quite addicted to their cell phones, having trouble putting them down, and these conversations aren't being had. And what we want to do is really take an educational approach to social media literacy the same way we might in literary criticism. What does that look like? When we're teaching lit crit, we don't go in and say, oh, I want you to see that there is this really racist thread in this book. And as you read, this is what it's going to look like. You ask the right questions. How did this make these characters feel? How do we feel about this value system? What do you think is going on here? How do you think this informs the humans that we ought to be and want to be? And we do the same thing with social media. We say, 
who do you think is benefiting from this? Who do you think is making money if you click on it? Who do you think it's helping? What do you think this person's life is like when they're not taking a photo on Instagram? And most importantly, how do you feel after you scroll on this feed? I wonder if you're feeling angry. I wonder if you feel less than, because we know most girls after they scroll feel a sense of despair. And if you feel angry, if you feel superior, if you feel left out, if you feel less than, if you feel like you can't wait to get more, that's a sign that your brain is being hooked through these neuroplastic reward circuits that work the same way that slot machines do and that you're being played. And guess what happens when you help girls understand that they're being played? They don't like it. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'm listening to you talk about how this is impacting girls, adolescents. And I'm like, I'm 38. It's doing all the same things to me. It's not exclusive to young kids. It's just they really don't have the tools or resilience or brain yet, as brilliant as they are, to be able to handle it. And I don't think we do it either as adults, to be no, honest. We, don't. we can right. see that reward circuitry in the brain. What it looks like for you or me is we think about, oh, well, I've got to go back to get that next dopamine hit of this big emotion And it looks like in the brain, thinking about the lottery or the next bite of chocolate or having a glass of wine with your best friend, it lights up the exact same reward circuitry in the brain. And the brain goes, well, how am I going to get that next bite of chocolate? I've got to get back on that feed. I've got to scroll some more to get the dopamine hit. In kids, something else happens, however. And that is that over time, scrolling, seeing what's like, seeing those images, which go into the brain so many thousands of times faster than words, does something that I think is really scary. It turns off the brain's be careful filters and makes high risk behaviors more normalized and the brain less likely to be able to discern between what is safe and what is not safe. It's the reason why you're sitting with your daughter at the at the dinner table and she's like, of course, when I go to Sally's party, I'm not going to have a beer. You know, what are you talking? Of course. But all those Snapchats and, you know, Finsta posts, which show, and TikToks, which show girls in her school or her age group, or even girls she doesn't know at her age, engaging in whatever, that is going to shift her to be less likely to uphold her agreements and values with her family when she's with her friends. So it takes peer pressure to a whole other level where the brain is actually now desensitized to the behavior before the question is put before a young person, should I do this or not? I truly feel like your depth of knowledge and understanding, which is not just the hypotheticals, it is rooted in science and your breadth of knowledge is absolute goals. 
in today's day and age. I'm going to spread this interview far and wide because I want as many people as possible to hear it. I know I've had so many aha moments myself. And I think that the more understanding we have around all of this, the more armed we can be to have these important conversations, to build deeper connections with our children, and to navigate the world that we live in. As I said, it's not about bubble wrapping everybody and never going out again, but it is how do we put guardrails in place as parents? How do we have those moments of connection where we can help repair and help our children navigate these things? And how do we have the self-awareness to know our own gaps, our own wounding and areas where there's opportunity to heal because only when we do the work ourselves are we able to fully show up as regulated or more regulated individuals for this younger generation. I can't thank you enough for joining me on the show today. I'm going to leave you with one last question. If you could send an email that was going to land in the inbox of every human tomorrow morning and it was sort of your last message that you would send, what would you say? I would say that the messages we want to give our girls in today's world should be framed from the position as if these messages of safety, of seeing them for who they really are, of appreciating their deeper characteristics, of being those older, wiser women who can come into their lives and support them, should be of the mindset, of the voice of missives we might want them to find even one day after we're long gone, that that is the voice of safety that our girls are asking for from the adult women who help them and support them. And think of it as avatars, because not the movie avatar, but the original Hindu use of the world is of a spiritual being who is here on earth to nurture and enhance the spiritual growth of a young being, and to use that idea, that warmth, that language to help them from whatever lever of power you hold. I love that. Thank you again. Where can everybody find you? It's Donna Jackson, Nakazawa.com. You can find Girls on the Brink wherever books are sold. And you can find my narrative writing program on my website. It's very easy. Donna Jackson, Nakazawa.com. And of course, on Instagram, where I hope I'm using social media for good. I will make sure to link all of that down below for everybody listening. Really take a moment to just pause you know, take that deep breath and to think about what you want to carry from this episode, because there's been a lot of information and a lot of brilliant analogies. I'm actually going to take some notes on what Donna has said and just summarize it in a one page PDF. If you'd like to download that so that you have a little cheat sheet available, I don't do this for very many episodes, but I'm going to do it for this one so that you have just some of the the key points that she said, and maybe it provides an opportunity for a little dinnertime conversation, or you want to pop it on your desk or your bedside table as beautiful little reminders. It will be there for you. You can download that at the show notes as well. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for having me. Bye all. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week.
Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.